but go zealously on. You will stand higher with the people if you sacrifice the Christians. Kill us. Torture us. Condemn us. Grind us to dust. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. So said Tertullian, who in his apology, which was something of his defense of Christianity. Tertullian was a Christian born in the late 2nd century. He was a citizen of Carthage. He was converted around the age 30. And his phrase, the, the blood of Christians is seed, has often been rendered, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The idea, of course, is that when Christians are martyred or mown down, as Tertullian put it, they're only planted into the ground to bring about a harvest of even more Christians. Tertullian, in that quote I just read, was kind of goading on the authorities, wasn't he? Virtually daring them to put Christians to death. From his perspective, he viewed martyrdom, the martyrdom of Christians, as a means that God might use to multiply his church. What do you think of that idea? What do you think about the idea that God might use Christian martyrs to multiply his church? It seems that history might affirm that reality. During the first few hundred years of the church's existence, the Christian church faced robust persecution. Beginning with Nero in roughly 54 AD, the Christian church endured some 10 waves of persecution. The intense persecution seemed to finally settle down with Galerius around 311 AD because he was on his deathbed and because he revoked the edicts of persecution against Christians. He then asked the Christians to pray for him and for the good of the empire. During those 10 waves of persecution, and immediately after that time, the Christian church grew at a rapid pace. But even before those waves, even before that, the Bible provides an account of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and the rapid spread of the gospel after his death. That's what we're looking at together this morning as we begin to study Acts chapter 8. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. If you're using the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 916. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, the larger numbers there in the, the page, the larger numbers are the chapter number, and the smaller numbers are the verse number. So I'll be referring a lot to chapter and verse. The book of Acts is Jesus' continuing ministry through his disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus announced the witnessing program that his disciples would undertake in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And the first six chapters in the book of Acts chronicle the witness of Jesus' disciples in and around Jerusalem. The last time we studied the book of Acts together, we examined Stephen's speech and his martyrdom which, as we'll see today, was the critical event which served to spread the good news of Jesus beyond Jerusalem. So, carrying forward the program that Jesus announced. Today, as we look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, we see the gospel go beyond Jerusalem and Judea and into Samaria. I had originally hoped to take us through the first 25 verses of Acts chapter 8, but in the midst of preparing the sermon, shall we just say, I found that I had a few more things to say about the first eight verses and didn't want the morning service to turn into a morning and evening service. So, next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up verses 9 to 25. But this day, today, we're looking at Acts chapter 
8, verses 1 to 8. And the, the message, the thrust of this portion of God's word is, is simply this. The message of Jesus will not be stopped. The message of Jesus will not be stopped. Jesus' disciples will be his, his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we see this actually in the passage we're looking at together this morning, right in the heart of the passage. So let me just show you two verses right tucked there in the middle. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 4. You see what it says? It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's the message about Jesus. Just one more verse now, verse 5 of Acts chapter 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. This message, despite persecution, despite prison, is going to keep going on. Uh, this message is going to face obstacles like divisions and demons and disabilities. And it's going to keep going on. The message of Jesus will not be stopped. And in fact, if we were, continue, were to continue our study through verse 25, we would see in verse 12 and 25 that the preaching of the word continues on. But we'll pick up those verses next week, Lord willing. But in particular, I want you to see that the message of Jesus cannot be stopped by persecution or prison or by divisions, demons, or disabilities. And that's going to actually be the outline of the rest of the sermon. So if you're taking notes this morning, two points. Number one, the message of Jesus cannot be stopped by persecution or prison. We'll see that in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And second point, the message of Jesus cannot be stopped by divisions, demons, or disabilities. We see that in Acts chapter 8, verse 5 through verse 8. So we're going to unpack this text in two sections under those two headings. And as we prepare with our first point, as we prepare to enter into our first point and read Acts chapter 8 verses 1 to 4, that the message of Jesus cannot be stopped by persecution or prison, we need to remember that Stephen has just been put to death because our text picks up in somewhat of an awkward place. We don't remember that fact. Stephen has just been put to death. Stephen, if you remember, he was a, a servant of the church in Jerusalem. He was one of seven men chosen to care for the needy widows in Jerusalem. And as he served like Jesus and spoke about Jesus, Greek-speaking Jews, men from Stephen's own background, began to ask questions. Stephen, he, he shared the gospel with them, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. And these discussions turned into debates and, and the tensions were, were raised. Stephen was eventually accused of blasphemy and dragged in before the council, the Sanhedrin. And he gave a defense. As angry men stared at him, Stephen offered the longest speech or sermon recorded in the book of Acts. He did not back down from his message that Jesus is the Messiah. He once again proclaimed to those angry men looking at him that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. He came to forgive sinners like you and me. Stephen's accusers then stoned him to death. Stephen amazingly died praying for those who persecuted him and put him to death. He died praying that the Lord would forgive them. And that's where we left off. And that's where we pick up reading in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Follow along now as I begin reading in Acts chapter 8. I'll read verses 1 to 4. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
you see there. Verse 1 it begins with a reminder of Stephen's execution. But consider the end of verse 4. The word was preached. Though Stephen may have been silenced by stones, and though the church was scattered, the apostles and the disciples of Jesus were not silent. They took up the cause of preaching the word. The message of Jesus cannot be stopped by persecution or prison. And you'll notice that we're introduced, or we meet this man named Saul. He was giving his approval, his hearty approval, to Stephen's execution. We've already met Saul in the book of Acts. If you look back into chapter 7, verse 58, you'll see that Saul, he kept watch over the coats of those who had taken off their coats to stone Stephen. That was something of a passive posture for Paul, or Saul, sorry. Um, Though here, Saul is, is active. Luke is describing for us. He not only gave approval of Stephen's execution, but he went after those who believed like Stephen. Saul could not see how Christianity and Judaism were compatible. Saul, a thoroughgoing Jew, believed that God's Messiah would be a king who would overthrow Israel's oppressors. A crucified and thereby defeated Messiah was an utter impossibility in his mind. So he had to put an end to what he saw as blasphemy. Saul thought he was doing the work of God in seeking to squash the Christian church. That's what persecution is in this context. It is the systemic hunting down of believers to inflict pain, to suppress preaching, and even to put some to death. Note here that you can do what you think pleases God and be very misguided, as Saul was. That was going on with Saul. He thought he was serving God, but in truth, he was actually opposing God. Which brings up a matter that we've already seen in the book of Acts. Perhaps you remember the name Gamaliel from Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel uh, came up with a different approach to handling the Christians and their message. If you know Saul's history, you know that Gamaliel was actually Saul's teacher. So here we have teacher and student parting ways with respect to how to deal with these Christians, these disciples of Jesus. Gamaliel, in Acts chapter 5, took the patient but ultimately pragmatic approach to these Christians. Gamaliel believed that if this new messianic movement was of man, that if man just kind of made this up, then it was ultimately going to fizzle out and die out, as the last few, actually, messianic movements had done. The leaders, they're they're just going to die out, they'll just go away, so Gamaliel preached patience. He told the council, just look, just step away from these men and it's all going to play out and die. But Saul, as we see here, he didn't didn't like that approach. Rather than waiting for the movement to die out, he actually wanted to help the movement die out by killing its leaders. Saul and those who threw stones at Stephen, you see that they wasted no time in going after other Christians. After all, Luke tells us that it was on that very same day that a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem began. Brothers and sisters, recognize that such things can happen in an instant. There's no way to prepare for them other than to be firmly planted in God's Word and constant in prayer. And as we even prayed about this morning, He will give us the grace to do all that He calls us to do. Well, the day that great persecution broke out would be fixed in the memory of the Jerusalem church as they suddenly became the subjects of intense opposition. One day... The Lord Jesus would save Saul. I've already even slipped in my thinking about him, calling him Paul, right? We, we later know him as the Apostle Paul. One day, the Lord Jesus would save Saul. He would make him an apostle. And what a wonderful picture of God's grace that persecutors can be turned into preachers. That's the gracious power of God. But on, on this day that we're looking at here in Acts chapter 8, Saul was merciless, wasn't he? 
in the pursuit of those who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Look at verse 3 alone. Look at what it says. Saul ravaged the church. He went door to door looking for those who call themselves disciples of Jesus. He dragged off men and women. Luke means to startle us by what Saul is doing. He committed them both to prison. Saul was ruthless. He really did ravage the church. And after Saul's conversion, after he became known as the Apostle Paul, he actually provided his own testimony of how he persecuted Jesus' church. So later in Acts, in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, he says this, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Notice how Paul describes his engagement and his persecution as his personal endeavor. A little later in that same chapter, in Acts chapter 22, verse 19, he confessed that in one synagogue after another, he imprisoned and beat those who believed in Jesus. He personally raised his fist against Christians and he struck them. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he confessed that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I love that qualification. He tried to destroy it. In the end, it would turn out that he could not destroy the church of the living God. You can cut down one Christian, but the Lord will stand another one up to proclaim the grace of Jesus. Are you a Christian who is ready and willing to be cut down? Are you a Christian who is ready and willing to be stood up and proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ? Take a moment and marvel at God's grace He saves men like Saul. We should never write off ourselves or anyone else for that matter as a hopeless cause. What if everyone in your life did that? What if everyone wrote you off? No. God pursues sinners. He saves wonderfully, gloriously, saves serious and wicked sinners. Saul is a wonderful testimony of that. And we should always have hope. And we should always proclaim the good news to the lost. What should we do with people like Saul? What should we do with those who hate Jesus' people? Well, we should do what Jesus tells us to do. In Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you or persecute you. Let's pray for those who oppose Jesus and his message. Let's seek to love them, to do good to them, and to bless them. Saul tried to stand in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we'll learn in a later study of Acts, in the end, Saul got run over by the gospel and redeemed by Jesus. No one, not even you, are too far gone. Maybe you are trying to stop God's gospel from having progress in your life. Well, friend, you're the one that needs to stop resisting And start receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace with joy. These verses, they teach us. You see that some stayed in Jerusalem and some scattered. We're told that the apostles stayed back in Jerusalem. You see that there in verse 1. We don't know how or if they avoided prison at this point. But we do know that they stayed. They stayed and they were not silent. For we're told later that the Jerusalem church actually continued to thrive under their ministry. And it seems likely that not all of the believers in Jerusalem were scattered. The, the, the vast majority were scattered. So much so that it was appropriate to describe the scattering of the, as the whole church kind of leaving town. Nevertheless, the most plausible scenario is that the persecution especially took place among the, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking 
Jews who believed in Jesus there in Jerusalem. That's who Stephen actually was ministering among, after all, and the most likely and most nearest target uh, of this persecution. This is often how it must be when persecution takes place. Some must stay, and some must continue the work of the ministry. They must scatter. Some must face prison and persecution They must, as they stay. And others must carry on the good news of Jesus to more receptive peoples. And whether Christians stay or go, the proclamation of Jesus cannot stop. And a number of Hebrew Christians must have stayed with the apostles. We're told there in verse 2 that some devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. That term, devout men, often refers to pious Jews in the New Testament. These must have been Jewish believers in Jesus. And this is a bold move on their part. In their loud lamentation, they are publicly showing their solidarity with Stephen and the Savior that he proclaimed. I so appreciate this remembrance of Stephen. And as a church, I pray that it is one we take to heart, this picture that we see here. When the Lord is pleased to call home a member of our church family, a member of Arlington Baptist Church, this is what we should do. This is what devout, godly men and women do. They mourn the loss of fellow members. We should gather together to give thanks to God for the lives of our brothers and sisters, the saints that He's called home. We should mourn their deaths. And we should remember that they are with Christ. We should pray for the Lord to keep us faithful to the end like He kept them. So, brothers and sisters, members of ABC, if one of our church family dies, whether that's from COVID or cancer or natural causes, be sure to attend their funeral. Yes, you should tell your boss that a family member of your church has died and that it's your Christian duty to go and comfort the grieving and to pray with hope for the resurrection of the body. We ought to love one another as the early church did. This is what brothers and sisters in Christ who are devoted to one another do. And if you're saying to yourself, but I didn't really know them, then you should still go to the funeral. You've still covenanted to know them and love them. And you should make it a point from that point forward to get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ so well that you will grieve when God calls them home to glory. We also need to recognize that Luke is intentionally texturing his narrative with the word scattered there. You see it, he uses it in verse 1 and in verse 4. That's a word that's used of the people of Israel being scattered among the nations when they were driven into exile. The idea of a scattered people becomes prominent later in the Apostle Peter's letters as he calls fellow Christians strangers and sojourners and exiles among the dispersion. In other words, among the scattered people of God. There's a sense in which from that day forward, God's people became a scattered people, scattered all over the globe. And this was part of God's glorious design to send the good news of Jesus everywhere. Though that was God's good plan and providence, we must also recognize the pain that it must have caused our brothers and sisters in Christ as they scattered. Right? As they left Jerusalem, they let goods and kindred go, as we sang earlier. They left their homes. They left their families. They left their jobs. They left their income, their security. And they must have all considered Jesus and His good news worth it. They must have desired a better country that is a heavenly one. They must have believed that though they were leaving that city, 
God was preparing for them a better city. They could have remained silent and stayed in Jerusalem, and they would have been safe from persecution or prison. But instead, they chose to speak about Jesus, and they were forced to scatter or face persecution in prison. What about us? Are we ready to be bold for the Lord Jesus Christ? Whether we stay or if we're scattered. Are we ready to take up our calling of making sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ does not stop but continues to be proclaimed? What will be your part in that? Are we ready to give up our homes, our careers, our safety and security? Are we willing to go to prison for Jesus? Do we really count everything as loss? because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. Is Jesus, making Jesus known, worth everything to us? These saints in Acts chapter 8 thought so. And they were right in their estimation of Jesus. He is worthy of everything. Proclaiming His message is worth everything. Jesus is worth suffering persecution, and He's worth the sorrow of prison. As I reflected on the scattering that we all kind of underwent due to COVID last year, I puzzled over my, my own faithlessness in that season. Right? I, and maybe this was true of you, I turned inward. I should have been scattered to my neighbor's doors proclaiming Jesus to them. Right? I, I should have turned up to my neighbor's doors and said, I know that you are afraid to die, but do you know the man who died and lived? Do you know the man who promises his people that though they may die, yet they shall live? I know that you want eternal life because you're locked up in here and you want to protect your life. Do you know the man who can give that to you? I should have told them about Jesus. If a scattering happens to us again, I pray that I will be found more faithful. Maybe that's something you should pray about too. Let's all pray that the gospel would continue to run in our lives no matter the cost. That's what these verses teaches us. Acts chapter 8 verses 1 to 4 teaches us that the message of Jesus cannot be stopped by persecution or prison. And we shouldn't let it be stopped by a plague or pestilence. These next verses, these next few verses, Acts chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, they teach us that the message of Jesus cannot be stopped by divisions, demons, or disabilities. That's the second point. The message of Jesus cannot be stopped by divisions, demons, or disabilities. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. In verses 5 to 8, Luke provides a snapshot of the ministry of one scattered Christian. Here we meet Philip, 
And he actually shared a lot in common with Stephen. He too, Philip, was a Jew. And he was one of the seven chosen to serve alongside Stephen. It's probably easy to see from these verses how the message of Jesus is not stopped by demons or disabilities, right? You probably notice that Philip's ministry was attended by the power of God. In verse 7, we're told that unclean spirits, also known as demons in the New Testament, came out of many. Philip's ministry was also attended with the healing of those who were lame and paralyzed. Those are different kinds of disabilities. But what about divisions? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ overcome divisions? Well, Philip's proclamation of the Christ takes place among a people with whom Jews had long-standing divisions. The Samaritans are sometimes known by the infelicitous term half-breeds. When the ten northern tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel were exiled by Assyria, they began to intermarry with the Assyrians and some of the other nations with whom the Assyrians had conquered. This was actually the Assyrian policy. The Assyrians wanted to diffuse nationalism of the nations they conquered. And their goal was to keep them silent and subjugated, not to rise up. And so they did this through intermarriage. Later, those who intermarried and lived in the region of Samaria became known as the Samaritans. Though the Assyrian intermarriage policy sought to diffuse some of the nationalism, the Samaritans did retain some aspects of Jewish belief. So they believed in the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah, the, the books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They, they were also looking for the arrival of the prophet like Moses, promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18. However, given their mixed lineage, they were often at odds who retained their full Jewish lineage. Uh, there were deep divisions between the Jews and the Samaritans over who God's people were and where God's people worshipped. So, for example, the Samaritans rejected the Jerusalem temple in favor of Mount Gerizim. And that was a point of deep division. Though Philip was a Greek-speaking Jew, he was still a Jew. And many Jews would do all they could to avoid Samaria. So sometimes uh, they would even take a circuitous travel route to avoid going through Samaria. But Philip, as we can see from verse 5, he went down to the Samaritans and proclaimed to them the Christ. This was a deliberate choice on the part of Philip. Much like it was a deliberate choice on the part of Jesus to go to Samaria in John chapter 4. If you know John chapter 4, then you know that Jesus had a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she was nothing like him. Her life was littered with sin. And yet Jesus revealed to her that he was the Savior, and that in him she could have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. She believed, and she became actually something of an evangelist among the Samaritans during the course of Jesus' ministry, so that other Samaritans also came to believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Jesus was the first one to cross these ethnic divisions and to offer salvation to the Samaritans. Philip is imitating the ministry of Jesus, which makes perfect sense in light of the fact of Jesus' desire for his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Philip is again bringing this message of salvation to the Samaritans. Like Jesus, he took on those ancient divisions and he sought to reunify God's people under the lordship of God's Messiah. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament predicted that one day God would reunify his scattered and exiled people under his Messiah. So listen to what Isaiah chapter 11 
Verse 12 proclaims about God's Messiah. Listen for the, the reunification. Uh, verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 11. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. That would be the northern kingdom through whom the Samaritans would come. So he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The prophet Isaiah saw the day when God's Messiah would reunify his divided people. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 6 proclaims something similar too. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 6 says this, I will strengthen the house of Judah, that would be the southern kingdom, and I will save the house of Joseph, that would be the, the northern kingdom of through whom the, the Samaritans would kind of come. I will strengthen the house of Judah, I will save the house of Joseph, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. You see, not only does Philip's evangelistic ministry and journey into Samaria fulfill Jesus' mandate in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, not only does it show that Jesus is a true prophet, there will be the spread of the gospel among the nations, that they would be a light for the nations, but within the larger context of Scripture, we see that in the Christian church, God's people, those who trust in God's Messiah, are being reunited and restored. The gospel of Jesus Christ conquers ethnic divisions. That was true in Jesus' day. It was true in Philip's day. It was true in Paul's day. It is true in our day. The good news of Jesus Christ reconciles us to God and to one another. And one implication of that means that all forms of partiality, whether that be critical race theory white nationalism or any other partiality toward a particular ethnic group is conquered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all a part of the fallen race of Adam and we all need to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. One form of partiality is not better than another form of partiality. True, lasting, and eternal reconciliation happens in Jesus Christ. That's what God's word says in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, we're told that the wall of hostility, the division between Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles are just everybody else who's not a Jew, the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles is abolished in Jesus Christ as we are formed into the one people of God. So listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16, where Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you at that, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. The message of Jesus Christ will not be stopped by old divisions. Instead, it will thrive through them. Jesus, in His grace and for His glory, means to unite people in His church from all over the globe. Our church, in God's kindness, is a living testimony 
of the reconciling power of God in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in our church family hail from Brazil, Singapore, China, Israel, Botswana, Kenya, Nigeria, the Philippines, the UK, India, New Jersey, and that strange and foreign land known as the Republic of Texas. Brothers and sisters, in this church family, we will not let the world pit us against one another. Instead, we will let the word dwell in us richly so that we show our unity in Jesus Christ. We're not going to move away from those who are not like us. We're going to move toward them in love. The message of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped by divisions. And the message of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped by demons or disabilities. That's especially clear in verse 7. Just as Philip imitated Jesus' ministry in going to Samaria, to the Samaritans, so Philip showed forth Jesus' power that in and through him the Spirit healed those with demons and disabilities. And it's here that we need to remember that what is happening is not ordinary, but extraordinary. Uh, sometimes as Christians we, we read our Bibles, we read the Gospels, we read the book of Acts, and we think this, this is just something that happens. It's just this ordinary order of the day. But in reality, these are extraordinary manifestations of God's power. And God tends to make His power known by signs and by the Spirit in places that the good news of Jesus is first being proclaimed and received. So Philip performs signs, and the purpose of these signs in the Scriptures are to signify that the message that is being proclaimed is true. So as we read the book of Acts, as we continue to study, if the Lord Jesus tarries, when we come to a new locality that hasn't seen or heard or received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit is going to do a mighty work, and that proclamation will be attended with signs and wonders to prove that Jesus is ruling and reigning and redeeming sinners. That's what happens in these narratives. This is the foundational era of the church, and once that foundation is laid, it's not surprising that signs, like we're seeing here, kind of dissipate. Since the foundation of Christ church has already been laid, I don't expect to be performing these kinds of extraordinary signs in my ministry, just so you know. And I don't think there's another minister in the world today who should expect that either. That's not to say that there are no more demons or disabilities in our world. Sadly, the, the world still bears the marks of a fallen world. So we should not be naive. As we've sung earlier, we have a foe who seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great. He's armed with cruel hate. He has demons at his disposal, and he seeks to oppress people by them. That's a real reality in our world. And that's why we put on the full armor of God through faith and prayer. We put on the full armor of God so that we wage war against those powers that are not of flesh and blood. And God in his kindness is often pleased to relieve people of those oppressive powers. Just as demons remain in the world, so do disabilities. We all know friends and loved ones with disabilities, whether that occurs kind of naturally in their life or some event, uh, a tragedy occurs, and they're afflicted with a, a disability from that point forward. Disabilities are not necessarily a result of their sin or their parents' sin, as Jesus taught us in, in the Gospels. It's a result of Adam's fall into sin that there are, are disabilities in this world. The curse that the world has been subjected to and is groaning against continues to make itself evident in our day. Right? We, we all know friends, even members of our, our congregation, 
who have disabilities. And we especially ought to come alongside them and minister to them in love. We ought not leave them alone. Though we are not able to perform extraordinary signs to heal our friends and our loved ones and fellow church members, we can certainly show them extraordinary love of God through friendship. And we can remind them that in the fullness of God's kingdom, every ailment of their body will be healed. That's their hope. And it's our hope too, especially for those of us who may be young and are going to get older. We're going to feel this and know this and long for that hope and love that hope more and more. As we age, we will feel our bodies breaking down more acutely. And I think and I hope and I trust our own desire for glory will grow. Glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. Children, let me say a word to you about this as well. Let me encourage you to be kind and loving and caring towards those with disabilities in our world. With with differences. You're going to notice them as you grow up in life. And you want to be particularly affectionate and kind and loving and caring and friendly to these friends and neighbors and and perhaps family members. They they are made in the image of God. They bear God's image. They deserve our dignity, our respect, and our love. And we ought to honor and care for them. Listen patiently and and eagerly uh, to them. Love them and lift them up in prayer yourself. Pray that they would come to know the Lord Jesus and share the Lord Jesus with them too. That we are not, at least certainly I'm not, performing these kind of extraordinary works of um, healing the lame or the paralyzed doesn't mean that God isn't at work in our world. He certainly is. He can drive demons out of persons. He can remove disabilities from those if He chooses to do so. But it does seem to be the testimony of Scripture that these extraordinary gifts were especially tied to the apostles and to their delegates like Stephen and Philip, who will often be known as evangelists. And they are tied especially to the foundation-laying era of the church. And let me just issue a warning that I've already kind of subtly, maybe not so subtly, dropped in. Sadly, there are many kind of health and wealth ministries out there that make promises to God's people on which they cannot deliver. If you come into contact with those ministries that are promising you healing, if you just send in a bunch of money, don't believe them. Run away from them. Uh, They're just modern-day magicians who want your money. Stay far, far away from them. Philip's sign ministry was unique to that era of the church. It was a foretaste of the power of the coming kingdom of glory. It was a signal that Jesus does reign and that he should be believed. One day, all divisions, demons, and disabilities will be banished. Even though our ministry on earth will likely not have such extraordinary signs attached to it, there is one thing that I do want to say. Jesus really does have the power to cleanse, to heal, to restore, and to forgive right now. And I mean that especially in a spiritual sense. We have all been made unclean by wickedness and its many forms. We're all sick with sin. We've all broken fellowship with God and divided ourselves off from Him. We're all in need of pardon. And Jesus' blood can make the foulest clean. Jesus can break the power of sin and set the prisoner free. Jesus can spiritually heal you. Jesus really can restore your fellowship with God. Jesus really can pardon and forgive you of all of your sins. Jesus can conquer addictions, whether that be to money, to the praise of men, to alcohol, to drugs, to sexual immorality, 
Friends, there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has power. He is mighty to save. And He can sanctify. And I want to urge you to come to Jesus Christ now. Today. Friend, as I said, we've all sinned and rebelled against God. We've all chosen to live our way rather than God's way. And that has put us in a bad way. And that's what sin is and what sin does. Because of our sin. We all stand in danger of the threat of God's eternal punishment. We've sinned against the eternal God. And so therefore we deserve to face an eternal punishment for our sin. But the good news of the Bible is is that in love, God the Father sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the life that we have not lived. A life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus never sinned. Being fully God and fully man, He served as our representative. And He went to the cross and He laid His life down. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And for all of our sin, we deserve to be paid those wages. But it was Jesus who was paid those wages in His death on the cross if we turn from our sin and trust in Him. But that was not the end of Jesus' story, nor is it the end of the story of His people. For three days after His death, God the Father raised Jesus from the grave, victorious over sin and death, showing us that He was righteous, that He was our representative. And He was later received into glory. And we too might be received into glory if we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. Friend, believe that Jesus lived for you the life that you've not lived. Believe that Jesus died for you, bearing the punishment that your sins deserve. Believe that Jesus was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. If you want to know more about what it means to have all of your sins forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, talk with a friend or Christian or family member that you came here with this morning, find me at the door after the service. I'd love to tell you more about this good news in this great and glorious and gracious Savior. And this good news about Jesus is why, of all people, God's people ought to be filled with joy. Did you see that in Acts chapter 8, verse 8? You see what verse 8 says? So there was much joy in that city. Not a little joy. Much joy. There was much joy in that city. There was much joy because old divisions had been overcome by the preaching of Jesus. There was much joy because demons had been driven out by the presence of Jesus' spirit. There was much joy because disabilities and the effects of the curse on the bodies of men and women had been pushed back by the power of Jesus. And even more than all of that, there was much joy because the people of that city received the pardon of Jesus. Jesus brings joy. And not just a little bit of it. A lot of it. Jesus brings much joy. As Christians, we know what it is to have the pardon of Jesus and the promise of Jesus. That one day, we will no longer be subject to worldly divisions, depravity, disease, decay, or death. We have cause for much joy. Our church should be filled with much joy. And we ought to pray that our joy in Jesus would spread to the city, to spread to all of those around us. And as we conclude, I want you to listen closely to these words on joy from Octavius Winslow. He writes, the religion of Christ is the religion of joy. Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open our prison house, to cancel our debt. In a word, to give us the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of a heaviness. Is not this joy? Where can we find a joy so real, so deep, so pure, and so lasting? 
There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying, sanctifying joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The believer in Jesus is essentially a happy man. The child of God is, from necessity, a joyful man. His sins are forgiven. His soul is justified. His person is adopted. His trials are blessings. His conflicts are victories. His death is immortality. His future is a heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, endless blessedness. With such a God, such a Savior, and such a hope, is He not, ought He not, to be a joyful man? Friends, Brothers and sisters, rejoice. You have been redeemed by Jesus. And He rules and reigns over you in love. Let's pray that our God would remind us of all that we have in Christ. So that we are filled with much joy. So much joy. That the message of Jesus is not stopped. But overcomes every obstacle for His glory. Let's pray that together now. Let's pray.